Welcome to Simple Life Radio, a program that features the unheard stories from the folks on the central coast of California. I'm your host, Cynthia Fernandez, and today's show is about living off the grid, or primarily off the grid. You know, the term off the grid is really defined as not requiring utilities, such as electricity, water, sewer, natural gas, heat, and other services. And the the people who truly live off the grid um, have a house that operates without the assistance of any public utility services. To achieve this independence, one's electricity needs to be on site and powered by renewable energy sources such as wind, solar, or a geothermal source. And as of 2013, just last year, current estimates are that 1.7 billion people in the world live off the grid and that's according to the home power magazine Uh, they also say that at least 180,000 families are living off the grid in the US and that that number is increasing every year now I want you to imagine just take a moment and imagine living off the land producing your own food and energy and getting away from the consumption economy that drives so many of our decisions For more and more people, off-grid living has become the way to go. Although statistics on Americans who choose this kind of a route, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to come by those statistics. The trends suggest that the number is increasing, and some people do it to be self-reliant or more in touch with nature. Many go off the grid to step away from society, and still others do it because it's the most financially viable option available to them. Now Nick Rosen is the founder of the Off Grid website and he's also the author uh, of Off the Grid Inside the Movement for More Space, Less Government and True Independence in Modern America. Um, That's a Penguin book and he says it's real life and a real choice for real people. Kind of a catchy phrase there. He also says that people go off-grid for a variety of reasons, and they vary how deeply they go off-grid. You know, I mean, you could have some access to public utilities, etc. Um, quote, you can't get off all of the grids all of the time, he says. It's a question of which grids you choose to get off of, and in what way, and for how long. Some people live off-grid part of the year for leisure purposes, taking a few months off from their job so they can live in a more relaxed way, and other people get themselves off the public electrical or water systems but still participate in what he calls the car grid or the supermarket grid or the bank grid. Well, today we're going to be talking in studio with our guest, Theo Mayer, about this because Theo lives this way. Now, just to give you a little background on Theo, he's a Stanford grad, graduated in 2001 from Stanford University, began that that uh, college stint in 1976, so he's not a 35-year-old guy. Um, he was a professional diver, a fisherman, a house builder. Uh, he was a woodworker, a luthier, one who makes musical instruments a professional storyteller, raft guide, farmer, Waldorf teacher, sailboat captain, and now writer. So welcome, Theo. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Cynthia. It's good to be here. 
Now, uh, another thing that, that Rosen said, I just want to run by our folks and see what your take is on this. Um, this guy, again, is the founder of Off Grid the website and also the author of the book titled Off Grid. He says, you become much more aware of the sun and the wind because you need it for power. Do you find that to be the case? Um, I do find that to be the case. So really in tune with what's happening in the present moment. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, he also says that we're consuming too much. Would you agree? I would agree with that wholeheartedly. So I really want to know what motivated you to live off the grid, primarily off the grid. Well, I think that motivation started a very long time ago. Um, I had a friend who was the zoologist at the Cincinnati Zoo. His name was Barry Wakeman. And he took me under his wing, so to speak. I was already a great nature lover. But I started to hang out with him. He had a club called the Junior Zoologist Club. Uh, where we spent most of a Saturday every week at the zoo. Uh, in the morning, we would go out bird watching from six to nine or go to some remote place and explore. And Barry really helped me to become a great lover of nature and an incredible observer of nature as well. When you see all of these wonderful creatures that live in nature, the incredible plants that grow, and are amazed day by day, hour by hour, uh, by life on the planet, one can't help but gain a sense of responsibility for it, especially seeing the detrimental effects that people can have. Mm. So from a very early age, I really wanted to do everything I could to help all the rest of the life on the planet flourish. Mm. So, so, so it was sort of a, a green perspective at a very young age. At a very young age. Yeah. Yes. And at this point in time, part of living off the grid or synonymous with living off the grid for me is living very close to the wilds as well. I live in a place where there are a lot of wild creatures uh, that are sometimes very challenging to deal with when you're trying to grow your own food. <laughs> but on the other side of that, it's so wonderful to be able to hear crickets and owls at night and to watch birds flying by all throughout the day and lizards and rabbits and squirrels and, and chipmunks yes yeah yeah so the ratio of human to wildlife is quite different than in a city or a town it's quite different and it is a source of endless pleasure to watch how things change through the seasons and even just through a single day mm-hmm yeah. See, I feel calmer just hearing you speak about that. <laughs> now, is there is there a story you wanted to share since you're a professional storyteller? Let's take advantage of your gifts. Well, there is one story that I think goes along with this. It's a story called Buried Treasure. And it starts off with an older man who had lost his wife, had four children, who had left the farm where they had grown up, uh, 
So he was left tending the farm by himself. They'd gone to the city to work because they just saw that he spent hours and hours every day taking care of all the things, carrying water, digging holes in the ground, pulling weeds, planting things, taking care of animals. And they thought that's just way too much work. But he knew that he was going to be uh, passing soon, and he called the children to him. And he gathered them round, and he had with him four sticks. He had two sons and two daughters, and he passed the sticks to each one of them, and he asked them to break the sticks, which they easily did. He asked for the sticks. He bound them up together, so now there was a bundle of eight sticks. And he asked them again to try to break the sticks. And they couldn't this time because these eight sticks were bound together. He said, you four are like those sticks. So long as you stay together and work together, you'll be unbreakable. But stand alone and you will be easily broken. He said, I'm leaving you this land and I hope that you will work together to continue to have it flourish. And I'm going to let you know that on this land is a buried treasure. The one hint I'll give you is it's no more than a foot beneath the ground. Mm. It was later that uh, winter that he died and left the four of them. And being the smart children that they were, they decided that they would move out to their childhood home from town and save themselves rent. And they did. And as soon as the ground had thawed, they started in one corner of the property where two roads intersected and they began to hunt for this treasure. On weekends, they would dig into the ground, dig as much as they could. And on one of these Saturdays, their uncle came by and saw what they were doing and said, you know, so long as you're digging up all this ground, you might as well put some seeds in it and grow something. <laughs> So he began to bring them seeds and plants to plant in the ground. And it was in no time at all that they had more vegetables and flowers than they could possibly use. And they built themselves a little produce wagon that they parked at the corner of the property. And they sold produce, let people come by and pick up what they wanted and leave what money they could. And as time went on, they spent more and more time taking care of the plants that they were growing and found that it was incredibly enjoyable and they got to enjoy each other's company as well as they were working. Well, as things go, they all over the course of years found partners and got married and had children and families and built houses on the property, continued to do the jobs that they did, but grew more and more food their farm was beautiful. They loved it. And they loved working with each other. And they found that that work was really not work, but meaningful movement. Every fall in that community, there was a harvest festival. And on this particular year, the four children took on hosting the harvest festival. Now, this was an incredible event. 
it went on from noon until whenever things ended, which was usually in the wee hours of the morning. People brought food that they had grown and prepared into incredible dishes. There were storytellers, musicians, acrobats, jugglers. And people would come and talk and enjoy each other's company and tell stories and sing and dance. And this went on into the darkness of the night and went into the early morning hours. And finally everyone went home or bedded down for the night except the four siblings who were gathered around fire. And they looked at each other and they realized suddenly what that treasure really was. It was good food, good health, great company, and a great community. And this is really what it's like, ideally, to put yourself in a place where there's a community of people that are striving to live sustainably and off the grid, which is what's happening really in Palo Colorado Canyon to a great extent. There are many, many people down there that are growing their own food, living off the grid, figuring out how to get water, figuring out how to get along as a community. And uh, it's a pretty great place to live. And you're one of those people. One of those people. <laughs> Well, I think it's really an important piece that you mention about hard work. Um, <clears throat> in other countries, and, and used to be in this country, people gravitated from working the farm to moving to town and having an office job or a factory job because they saw how hard their, their parents worked. But you called it meaningful movement. Yes. <laughs> I like that a lot. And I think that it's important to realize that in this day and age, we have something called the Internet. It's not necessary to really reinvent the wheel. There's so many resources for information about how to do any number of things that you have that automatic assistance at your fingertips. This is true. However... I will say that there is nothing like direct experience. And the other wonderful thing about the world that we're living in, and the internet included, is there are ways to get that experience. I would say woofing uh, worldwide opportunities on organic farms is perhaps one of the best ways for people today to be able to go to farms, see how things are done, get their hands dirty, eat good food, hang out with people that are often doing wonderful things. So that is a great way to go. And I have... Would that... Sorry to interrupt, yes. but would that be like interning? It is or, a bit like interning. work study, work trade program? Yes, woofing, what happens is a potential woofer will contact a host farm and inquire about coming and staying. And depending on whether that host needs help, 
that person uh, will come up and give time in exchange for a place to stay. Room and board. Food, and also the ability to interact in community. Yeah. I've had people that are as young as 18 and as old as, I think my oldest was in his early 70s, Hans Jörg from Switzerland, (laughs) one of the best workers I've ever had. Wow. So that's an organization where you can kind of get experience, apprenticing almost. Yes. You can see there are farms throughout the country and around the world, so you can see just about any aspect of agriculture that mm-hmm. you would want. Uh, it's incredible. Is And so that's what you would uh, look up to find a contact for that? Yes. Uh, you, I think you, in order to really get on the Woofing website, you have to become a member in order to find the farms and communicate with them. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to ask you if you've had training for this endeavor, and then I remembered the litany of uh, titles I introduced you with. But but specifically for what you do, have you apprenticed or had any specific training? I have. When I look back at my life, it makes me feel certain that we have guardian angels. <laughs> <laughs> Because I had so many experiences that were all about what I wanted uh, to do in regards to living off the grid in in a sustainable fashion. From Barry Wakeman, who was the zoologist at the Cincinnati Zoo, um, I ended up uh, shortly thereafter heading out to a 10,000-acre cattle and sheep ranch in Montana that my mom somehow discovered. This was not a dude ranch, but a working ranch. I was the one uh, farm worker uh, that the family hired for uh, two summers in a row. I went out there, and what an experience. These people lived 25 miles from the closest town, almost never went to town, ate everything from the land, from the wheat that they would make bread to the butter that we used to put on it, to the honey that we got from the bees and all the vegetables that they would grow during the summer and then can or dry in the winter for the winter. It was remarkable. And they'd fix anything. You don't go to town and, and uh, with your broken tractor, you get out there and fix it. So I, I watched people that took care of everything. Um, That wasn't all. I ended up uh, at one point in time getting into transcendental meditation. I lived in Fairfield, Iowa, and there I met a guy named Keith Rhodes. I went to him to try to get a couple of beehives. He was well known for being an incredible beekeeper. Walked into his house. It was in the fall, and he was had a fire going in his wood-burning stove, had some soup on the stove, and we looked at each other and immediately felt like we were brothers, sat down and ate some soup. Uh, He told me about his life. He had grown up as a Mennonite uh, in a horse-and-buggy Mennonite community, and uh, that Thanksgiving we went down and visited his family uh, and the community he had grown up up in, which was in Bowling Bowling Green, Kentucky. Mm -hmm. 
Later, I moved to Ohio from Fairfield. I was about three hours away from Bowling Green. Uh, and the family, when I had visited with Keith, uh, had invited me to come and stay whenever I wanted. It was kind of an odd thing. I looked like I belonged in the family. <laughs> uh, they ended up making clothing for me uh, so that whenever I came down there, I could kind of blend in a little yeah, bit more. Yeah. Um, and again, these are these were horse and buggy farmers, so mm -hmm. I did everything... They're completely off the grid. Completely off the yeah. grid. No electricity. No appliance. No generators. Incredible machinery, but it was all hand-operated or yeah. horse-operated. And uh, it reminds me of one day when we went out. Uh, this was an incredible day. We went out. We were picking peppers. And the pepper field was probably a quarter of a mile long, and but only probably about... Uh, 40 yards wide and there were probably 10 adults probably 15 kids two workhorses in a wagon and the workhorses in the wagon were on the road next to the pepper patch the kids were playing in the field on the horses on the wagon and in the woods near the field and the 10 of us adults were picking peppers. And we were going down, you know, like two rows a piece, picking these peppers, putting them to burlap sacks. We'd walk over to the wagon, dump the sacks out into the wagon. And as we moved along in the field, the horses would move with us. Just automatically. Just automatically. Wow. Didn't have to say anything to them. They would move, and then they would stop. And we were talking the entire time. There were no machines. The wind was blowing. You could hear the birds singing. But no machines to drown out That's each other's so voices. Great. And we would talk. And sometimes the conversation would get so lively that everyone would stop and would be standing up and listening and putting in their two cents and then one person would bend down and start picking peppers again and pretty much pretty soon we'd all be picking peppers again <laughs> and it just would it went like that all day long and uh, what an incredible thing we have lost that um we've lost working in community mm -hmm. uh, and helping each other out and we've lost that conversation that takes place while working. Yeah. What do we use nowadays? Uh, electric power tools. They're wonderful. You can get a lot of work done. They're fast. But yeah. uh, you can't talk very easily. That's true. That's yeah. really true. And so your description of visiting the Mennonite community is uh, reminding me of kind of a time travel into a, a long ago world. time when people live this way routinely whereas now we have some like yourself people who've chosen to live more simply more directly with their connection to nature and connection to people well the amazing thing is it wasn't that long ago that people were living that way you know when was the automobile invented in the early 1900s um so it's been just a little over a hundred years that uh, we've really had the mechanization that we've had when I think back to the first cell phones, 
and computers. Mm -hmm. It wasn't very long ago. Not long ago. Things have changed dramatically, and I would like to say something about that. I have had an incredible number of mentors, one of them being a man named Chuck Baxter, who was a professor at Stanford at Hopkins Marine Station. And uh, I've kept in touch with Chuck through the years, and he has really gotten into this whole thing of cognition. And cognition is um, really the, it's our ability um, of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. Um, how do you develop your cognition? Is by being in the out of doors in nature that you really understand how things work. The connectivity of everything. Indeed. Yeah. And so you take that away, which we have essentially done mm -hmm. in our schools and in the way that uh, most people are living in modern society. And you really take away people's ability to understand what the heck is going on. Mm -hmm. Which, when you look at the planet and realize the impact that people are having on it right now, there's no more important time than now to really figure out mm -hmm. what to do to make a positive influence. Well, this is a fascinating conversation, and I know we could go on for much, much longer, but we do need to take a break. Um, we are in studio with our guest on Simple Life Radio. Today, we're with Theo Mayer. And uh, for those of you who are listening, this program is airing on Radio Monterey. That's an internet radio station. You can find it at radiomonterey.com through TuneIn or Click on the link on the Pilgrim's Way website at pilgrimsway.com. Archives from today's show will be available as a podcast and can be accessed a number of ways. Simple Life Radio podcasts are available on iTunes, Podbean, and through Pilgrim Way, Pilgrim's Way website. And uh, you just need to click on Simple Life Radio tab. So we're going to go ahead and take that short break. When we come back, we're going to find out if everything went according to plan for Theo living off the grid. So stay with us for more Simple Life. And we're back. We have our in-studio guest, local Theo Mayer, a whole host of experiences that Theo brings to the to the uh, table here. But I, I want to really move forward because um, I've so enjoyed your stories and the detailed explanations that you share. I think that it's really important to give us a rounded uh sense of what you're talking about and at the same time I want to get into more logistics what your plans were so just logistically Theo where did you start when you decided you wanted to live off the grid what kind of priorities did you work with I mean were there certain buildings that you had to start with or power structures uh, I when I think about that I, first word that comes to mind is creativity you have to really have a good imagination to, I think, envision 
what's possible with a piece of land. Yeah, because you're looking at just land. That's what I was looking at. <laughs> uh, land with no water. Uh, it did have a couple buildings on it, uh, but they were not very good buildings. I had a, a very good friend, James Sivitz, who I built houses, decks, and all kinds of things with in Cincinnati, Ohio. He actually came out and helped me the first 10 days I was building my house. James got out of the educational system the day he turned 16. And he is, continues to be, one of the most creative people I have ever met or wow. spent time with. So going to school doesn't uh, necessarily culture creativity. In fact, I think a lot of times it takes it away. That's saying a lot coming from a teacher, <laughs> especially a Waldorf teacher. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think Waldorf does the best job of uh, culturing creativity. Uh, but when I bought my land i spent days just being on the land and trying to get a sense for where things should be uh, and also getting a sense for what was there in terms of living creatures uh -huh. uh, what trees and plants were thriving and where uh, and that really guided where i ended up putting my house gardens orchard uh, barn, driveway, all those things. Yeah. And you probably looked for uh, sun patterns, wind patterns. Yes, know. definitely. I the, know you mentioned you didn't have uh, water up there, so you probably had to take that into consideration. I did. I did that. Uh, I took that into consideration. How I built, I, I made my roofs out of steel and uh constructed my gutters out of copper which then went into PVC pipes and ran into holding tanks um, which I could then transfer the water that I was catching from the rain into other water tanks. At this point in time I have uh, the capability of storing 52,000 gallons of water which is quite a bit of water. So that's, that's water captured from rooftop runoff. That's correct. This year we didn't quite top it off okay. with rain catch. I ended up uh, supplementing uh, from a friend because it just didn't rain much. I know it's been. But we got over thirty thousand gallons of water from the rain on a bad year. On a bad year, and I wasn't even tapped into all. I have two more roofs that I could get tapped into and catch oh. a little bit more water. Um, so that was a big issue uh, when you're going to be using the sun for your electricity needs and putting in solar panels. Uh, of course, it's really important uh, where you put your panels. I had a friend come out um, who works for Applied Solar, Anthony Boncutter, and he came out with his little magic device that uh, kind of dialed us in as to where those panels should be. Um, we do have a backup generator, but I think burn about five gallons of diesel fuel per year. Oh my goodness. <laughs> in order to <laughs> supplement the solar panels, and that's just uh, wow. when it's rained for two or three days in a row. Yeah. We have to go and turn that thing on. The generator. The generator. Five gallons of diesel fuel a year. 
I, Whoa. There's, there's so many things when you begin to consider living off the grid. There's so many things that we've become used to. Refrigeration. Things we take for granted. Things we take for granted. Being able to flip on a light and leave it on. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, electricity, I can run just about anything during the day and do. I uh, have a full woodworking shop and run power tools all day long. But the minute that sun quits hitting those panels, I am running off of four L16 batteries. Um, Which is equating to how much time usage or... or uh, again, it really depends on <laughs> what you got on. That's right. If you've got lights on all night by morning, you'll have no power. No power at all. Yes. So we turn off lights. We don't keep them on. The refrigerator runs, uh, and it's a very small refrigerator built by a company called Sunfrost. It's a DC refrigerator, which is a little bit more efficient, very well insulated. And we also have a 10 foot by 10 foot cold room that's completely buried where we keep food. Uh, is that similar to a cellar? It's kind of like a root cellar. A yes. root cellar, yeah. Yeah. We don't really have those in California generally, but Midwest. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it does. South. You know, keep the things at a little cooler temperature. Yeah. Um, and it also doubles, especially in our area, as a fire shelter if Ooh. there ever is a big fire. Good point. Yes. Um, the other thing. You know, heating, we heat with wood. Uh, so, so like a wood stove or a fireplace? Wood stove. Uh-huh. So you've really got to consider if you're heating with wood, how do you design a house so that all parts of your house yeah. <clears throat> are enjoying the heat from that stove? So your house design needs to be well thought out in order to carry that heat throughout the house. And also, in order to burn less uh, insulating your house very well is important roofs are especially important um, there's an R value when you're building a house that has to do with insulation uh, our roof has an R value of over 45 which is quite a bit walls are over I think our walls are R19 um, and it really allows that heat to be held in very beautifully. Mm -hmm. Double pane windows. Good. Um, there's so many ways that you can save money as well. Wind building. When I started building my house, I went to Hayward Lumber and bought a huge amount of wood that had been special ordered and not picked up. Supposedly, I got these materials for half of their cost. So a quarter of the cost that I wow. normally would have paid. quarter of wholesale, basically. Yes. And it was beautiful, beautiful wood. I uh, went to window shops and went to their boneyard mm -hmm. where they have piles of windows that have been mismeasured and therefore can't be used, but are perfectly lovely mm. windows mm. Mm. Uh, that I was typically paying $50 a window for. Um, we have in our area the Dump Last Chance Mercantile. Love that place. Which I got cabinets from Last Chance, beautiful doors. So there's a lot of ways to save money when you're building as well. 
Good to know. You are a wealth of information. As, as you're speaking about all these uh, aspects and details, Theo, I'm aware of uh, <laughs> the factor of critical thinking. Yeah, I mean, you really utilize and exercise critical thinking. I mean, you, you, you spoke earlier about connecting things and really understanding interactions and relationships of uh, a bigger picture than uh, what we would call city city dwellers, right? Right. But you're talking about great mm. detail of interconnections, and I just it's like it's brilliant. Well, it becomes a, a fascinating journey when you try to be efficient with your time and your money um, to search out. <laughs> How you can make something work, especially doing it on a teacher's salary, which was not much. Yeah, that's the challenge. And you have succeeded beautifully. So now my question goes to, did all go according to plan? It absolutely did not. (laughs) One of the first things I noticed as I was building my house and I had gotten it roofed and the walls up, I actually built a post building, which didn't have a foundation because I didn't have water, so I couldn't pour cement to pour a foundation. So I built a post building, which allows you to put your roof on almost immediately. We put the posts in, put our second floor in, and then built the roof. And then you can put your walls in and take your time doing it because you're undercover. Uh, It was August 3rd when I started building. By the time the rains hit in November, (laughs) I had walled everything in, but I hadn't finished putting in the eaves. And up where I live, uh, on the ridge, it can blow over 100 miles an hour, and it it rains up. What? It actually rains up because... So so the rain falls, but then gets whipped up by the wind following the the incline. Yes. And it actually rains up. So this was one of those unexpected things. I arrived one night with a load of materials to, (laughs) you know, dump off in the house. And I'm watching in my truck's light beams the rain raining up. And I get inside the house, and sure enough, the rain was pouring in over the tops of the walls and under the eaves and just dumping on the inside of the house. So I had to really build my house like a boat. it was fun. It's a good thing you're a sailor. Yes. Another, th- it was unexpected things. I I expected moving into that community that uh, neighbors would be glad to have somebody new up there. But what I discovered, especially up on the ridge that I that I live on, is that there's a lot of people that just want to get away from people and away from it all. And having somebody new come in there is not what they wanted. So I I had and still have some difficulty with some of my neighbors up there. At one point in time, um, I was building a barn. I I have have horses. And uh, someone turned me in for building the barn to the county. They, I sure, thought that they were doing me a disfavor. But it, it really turned out to be one of the greatest things. There's that guardian angel. Yes, because I had (laughs) two different neighbors that uh, were using my property as if it was their own, and this allowed me to actually deal with it, uh, you know, 
via the county. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't been resolved completely, but is on the way. And that was another unexpected thing. I found dealing with the county to be wonderful. Uh, I think so long as you go in there with a good attitude, you're honest, and you invite their help, those people are there to help you out. And they love seeing people doing creative things, living off the grid, uh, working on creating rain catchment systems. That is so encouraging. I have had actually, Theo, I've had people come into uh, the Secret Garden uh, which is my husband and I have the Pilgrim's Way Community Bookstore in Secret Garden and, and have shared with me stories of their encounters where that has not been the case. And here, you know, this situation that was shared with me was the, the land was purchased. Um, and after that point, when they involve people in the county building uh, commission to approve of plans, off-the-grid plans, they... They meet challenges. So I would encourage anyone who's listening who's interested in this kind of a pursuit to check with your particular county and uh, definitely use that good attitude that Theo likes to use. Well, and I I was that person that uh, I can't remember how it goes. You know, I built without permits. Uh Uh-huh. And, you know, then what is it? Uh, Anyway. So better I'm still to, better work- to ask forgiveness there than permission. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Because I think going through that permitting process can be long and drawn out. Um, now, I don't want to interrupt you, but you have such a wealth of information. I am curious to know if part of your vision for what you're doing, uh, endeavoring to live a harmless life, a green lifestyle, uh, is to help others that are in the same uh, vein. Uh, yes, of course it is. And I mentioned that I host woofers. That's true. So that's one of the things that I, I do. Um, I love to have people up and show them, you know, what I've done on the land, uh, including other people that do the same thing. It's a wonderful thing to share ideas and help problem solve. And I understand uh, you're you're writing a book about your. I am writing a book about it that I, I want to share with people. I'm also attempting to get some of my neighbors together and form a sustainable Palo Colorado Canyon, and just figure out how can nice. we help each other out. Uh, another thing I, I'm working on is creating a practical arts center which I came up with the name of Utilitopia. Uh, This would be somewhere, I haven't figured out where yet, um, but a place where people could come and woodwork, woodcarve, blacksmith, weld, work with textiles, just exercise their creativity and be in an environment uh, where there are other people trying to do creative endeavors. Uh, Part of what I'd love to see in conjunction with with that would be a mentoring program so that if somebody was there, a young person, let's say, and they had the desire to work with a blacksmith, right. they could go find Jesse Jensen of Jensen Forge and, you know, apprentice with, with Jesse. So I'd like to have a, an extensive mentoring program oh, where people could, could learn about the things that they wanted to do. That is so, so awesome. I hope that you uh, quickly make headway on that. 
So, you know, there's, I, I just feel like so many people are really wanting to try to live more sustainably and more off the grid and it's provide true. for themselves. And what would you, what would you offer as advice for any of those people? I would just say, go for it. Yeah, there's so many different things that you can do from growing food in five gallon buckets on your porch um, to using less energy to doing some rain catch to bicycling to work carpooling walking reading about it hanging out with other people that are doing it going and volunteering at uh, local farms there's a lot of things that you can do. A lot of things that you can get personal experience with, which you were saying is really the best way. Well, I started off in my building career by helping two friends who were actually boat builders mm -hmm. uh, build a house over in Pacific Grove. Wow. And I used to go over there after I was done doing my diving work for the day. I'd ride over on my bike and I would hang out for, you know, two or three hours and they would tell me to do stuff and I would do it. But in the midst of helping them, I got to watch this house get built. Well, that's that's amazing. As an opportunity, that's an amazing way to learn. The other thing that I would say uh, that, you know, it's going to go probably against the grain for many people, but I'd say get off the daggone screens and get out in nature and feel what's going on on this planet mm -hmm. and spend time learning from nature itself uh, there is that old express expression almighty nature and really when we look at uh, the incredible wrath that a storm can bring uh, nature is truly almighty mm -hmm. and it really i think is incredibly important that we align ourselves with that power and energy uh, as opposed to trying to live our lives through consuming and uh, a materialistic lifestyle. Well, again, going back to the critical thinking aspect, people who live independently and uh, based on their own wits and labor are certainly more independent thinkers, more independent to take care of their needs and those of their family, their community. So it just, it seems like a healthier way to be altogether. I think so. Well, we are coming close to the end of our show. Um, I want to ask a couple of questions uh, before we run completely out of time. And that is, what do you envision for our future? I think the future is going to be challenging in a lot of different ways. And I think the less aligned a person is with nature the more challenging it's going to be. This is not a pain-free existence that we live in. So it's important to get used to that. Uh, we've altered and continue to alter, alter the healthy functioning of the planet. And I think the more quickly people start working on creating a positive influence on the planet, the better off we are all going to be. But I think the future could be incredible uh, there's so much creativity happening on the planet right now that, you know, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that if people could get out of the craving for power and money and start putting all that wonderful energy into making the planet a beautiful place, we, we'd be in a fabulous way. 
I love how you're seeing the future, Theo. I really do. And I think the transitionary point will be perhaps a little bit painful. But I don't want to put that out there because you never know. You never know. It's certainly, as you said, meaningful movement. And uh, and like the story of the uh, buried treasure, if we stick together, yes. it makes us stronger. And Indeed. we all benefit. So uh, I want to thank you so much for being here. Um, we are out of time. And I'm looking forward to that book. When we have the book, we'll have you at the Pilgrim's Way doing a book signing, I hope. Great. Yeah. Let's do this again. There's more to talk about. Indeed. Thanks so much for having me, Cynthia. You you have a great show. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and for those of you listening out there, check out our website at pilgrimsway.com for our upcoming events. Right now, we're sort of gearing up in support of the Days and Nights Festival that will be uh, at the end of September, two days in Big Sur at the Henry Miller Library. And then uh, Saturday, Sunday, will be held at... The uh, Sunset Center will be there also. Happy to be there. Looking forward to meeting Ira Glass on Sunday. And as usual, I'm so glad to be with you. I look forward to our time together next week. And until then, I would just say keep it simple. Keep your mind open for any of those uh, ways of having the life that you want to live be one that is really, really enjoyable for you. 